All right, our first question today comes in from Liana Guo, who asks, I know God is in control, but since prayer and fasting make a difference, is it my fault if someone, oh, question number one on the counter there. Is it my fault if someone is not saved because I didn't pray or fast enough for them? I feel responsible when I eat or forget to pray. Um, okay, there's. I would actually want to give a very long answer to this, uh, but I'm going to try to give you know a shorter answer. By long, I mean like a 25 minute answer. <laughs> but um, but let me say this: um, prayer does do something. Okay, here's principles. I'm going to offer like say five things about this that I think are important. Before we go to your guys' questions, uh, I'm Mike Winger, by the way, trying to help you learn how to think biblically about everything because it will bless your life in every conceivable way and give you god's truth for your life and so that's that's the goal that's the agenda here and that means we're going to go to scripture to find the answers to our questions so does prayer do something well scripture makes that abundantly clear prayer obviously does something um the some however here's my second point on this uh some say that prayer ultimately changes nothing specifically in regard to salvation that is you praying or not praying is not going to be the thing or be one of the things that makes somebody end up being saved or not. Um, this in particular, it has to do with how you view the doctrine of election, right? Like I think election is a biblical doctrine. The question is, what do you mean by election? And does that rule out man making a free decision to accept or reject Christ? Um, <clears throat> man being influenced by each other, us impacting and influencing each other. And I, I think it does not. So I'm not one of those. My, my second point is, First prayer of change does change things. That's abundantly clear throughout the scriptures. You know, if you have ever read the Bible, you know that. Number two, though, in response to those who say, uh, but prayer doesn't actually change who gets saved. Whoever's going to get saved is going to get saved. And whether you prayed or didn't pray, whether you witnessed or didn't witness, no matter what else happened, that's not going to change. And I think that is incorrect. Okay, so this is my opinion here. I, I do not think that that is true. I, I think that people really could get saved and choose not to. And there's different influences in their life. And one of those influences is your prayers for them. And so this puts a great like appreciation for prayer out there in my heart, but it also puts the same kind of concerns that you have in your question about like, hey, um, am I failing in some regard? Uh, am I responsible if someone else doesn't get saved because I didn't pray enough? So um, <clears throat> there's one thing I'll add to that that might help us from turning into that sort of catastrophizing. It, that's that's a word, I promise. That's a word <laughs> where we sort of, we, we catastrophize the the idea of someone not being saved because I, I didn't pray enough. I didn't, I didn't do X, Y, Z, and otherwise they would have been saved. Um, and then the full responsibility of their salvation kind of falls on my shoulder. So I want to balance that out a little bit with Romans 10, 1, because this is the only example in scripture I know of where prayer for someone to be saved is mentioned um, that I can think of at least with, you know, what I've got in my head here. So Paul writes about the the Jews, his his brothers, according to the flesh, that, that those who are physically from Abraham like he is, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That That's his ultimate one. He wants them to be saved. They have for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Um, they're rejecting God's righteousness through Jesus. But Paul had this phrase. He goes, I pray. My prayer to God. I don't think he was using prayer here as a, as a um, euphemism for, boy, I really want it. I think he probably meant he actually prays for their salvation. 
But even though Paul is praying, they're still not getting saved, at least not the way he's praying for them to be, because your prayer is certainly not the only factor in someone's salvation. So that, that's like a really important thing. Me and you have prayers that do impact people and they do change things. But it's not as though I'm going to pray and God will flip the switch and they'll get saved. And if I don't pray, he doesn't flip the switch and they don't get saved. Um, rather, there's a million things that are going on in the person's life. One of them could be the prayers I'm offering. Could they result in their salvation? Yes, at least be part of the things that are leading up to them receiving Christ. Does that mean my prayers got them saved? Well, no, I mean, Jesus's work saves them. But my prayers were something God used. But how do I pray for people for them to get saved? Um, I think that <clears throat> I would pray that God uh, sends them people to hear the, to preach the gospel to them, that God opens their eyes, that God shows them the truth, that God brings them to places in their life where they can, you know, understand, right? Because we have these walls that come up. With the, especially if you've been exposed to the gospel before, if you're rejecting Jesus, there's probably some reasons you have and those reasons are wrong, but they're your reasons. And so you're like, you know, asking that God would open your eyes to see those reasons are problematic. Um, often this comes with humbling because often our response to God is, is where we reject the gospel is one of kind of an arrogance um, that, that goes on there. And, and anyways, I'm getting a little bit beyond what I intended to discuss, but let me say this. Emphasis in scripture is more on us preaching the gospel than it is on us praying for people to be saved. And I, um, and these are the last two things I'll say, and I'll go to your guys' questions from the live chat. Um, one, in my opinion, that emphasis on preaching the gospel should be where your, your focus is more. More than on praying and fasting for people is actually communicating the gospel to people because that is the biggest way in which you can see people come to Christ is by telling them about Jesus Christ, how he died for them, how he loves them, how, how their sins can be forgiven through the grace of God. He rose from the dead. I mean, the basic, basic, basic gospel. Um, the, uh, the other thing I want to mention is that if you find yourself, like you said, and I didn't talk much about fasting because I felt like it's just too big of a question, but if you find yourself, like you said, you feel responsible when you eat or forget to pray, I think that you are projecting what ifs into what is, um, what if this moment I didn't fast and pray, so, you know, there would have been this wonderful breakthrough, but you don't know that's true. And it's creating in you kind of like an unhealthy mentality, right? Um, there are those who are, are paranoid, right? Well, there are those who are spiritually paranoid and this is not an insult to you at all because this is just a struggle you'll have to deal with. It's not meant to be an attack on your character if you feel this way. But when I'll talk here about like spiritual paranoia, <laughs> um, it could be this idea of what if this, what if that with all these spiritual implications where almost it's almost a phobia like a, like a person who says, um, I won't go out into public places because what if this happens and what if that happens and what if that happens? Now, there are legitimate reasons why some people shouldn't be going out. But I, I mean, when it's just a pure what if, right? Like when you eat, just eat, like you have lunch today and you feel guilty because maybe if you would have fasted and prayed, this feels to me like it's rising to the level of unhealthy, um, what if fears that might be leading you into an unhealthy interaction with the Lord, interaction with prayer, you don't know. And sometimes it's best, like, like the Psalm says, was it Psalm 103? Um, let me see if that's right. Um, no, no, it's not 103. Um, 
I'm going to find this psalm and share it with you because uh, 131. Psalm 131. Here we go. Super short psalm. I'm going to read it to you. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. He, he's talking about pride. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I am not obsessed about things that I can't understand. That, that's, what he, that's what he's saying. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Always real hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This psalm is for those, I think, who are overwhelmed by what ifs and things they don't understand that are just too much for them, right? And so he says, you know what? I'm not going to go there. Please don't go there, Christian, <laughs> into what if I had done this? What if I had done that? What if I had done this? Then this and this and this and this would have happened. It's like, well, you don't really know that's true. You're occupying yourself with things that you can't really understand. Focus back down on trusting the Lord in his goodness and in his strength, because we are all of us humans. We are psychologically weak people, just like we're physically weak and easily damaged. We are psychologically that way too. And there are, there's a place for when you notice yourself moving into the catastrophizing spiritual what ifs or other what ifs, practical daily issues that you're, if you feel what if, what if, what if you stop, you back off of that. You say, I don't need to know the answer to that question. I will simply trust in the Lord. I think that's just a health thing for us in our hearts. Yeah. And God's grace is there for you. Question number two, this comes from Robert Williams, who says, it seems like the two witnesses in Zechariah 4 and Revelation 11 are like two peoples instead of individuals. As Romans 11, 17 through 21 speaks of olive trees, branches, slash branches being Jews slash Gentiles. If so, would the rapture be the calling up of them? Okay, boy, that was a big thing you got there. So if I understand your, your theory right here, Robert, you're suggesting um, the rapture is the calling up of... Um, of two different people groups and these people groups are Jews and Gentiles and they're spoken of in Revelation um, 11 and Zechariah 4 as two witnesses. Um, I, th I think that um, I guess I, I would, here's the thing. I'm going to be super straight with you, Robert. <laughs> um, off of my memory, because I don't have time right now in the Q&A to go and review all of Zechariah 4, all of Revelation 11, and Romans 11, and all this stuff is just a bit much to get into, turn the answer into like a 30-minute answer. Um, but in Revelation 11, Zechariah 4, um, in these passages, to my memory, these things are more like, they feel more like individuals. And so if you're going to suggest that these are people groups... And that they're not only people groups, they're two divergent people groups. And specifically, one is the Jewish people and one is Gentiles. That's a lot of extra like baggage that's on you to demonstrate your, your interpretation. And I think one thing can happen to us, and it may or may not be happening to you, Robert, but I, I like to use these questions as a way of teaching everybody something, right? So this is for everyone. Um, I've had it happen to me many times where I come up with an interpretation that I'm excited about partly because I think it might be true and partly because I came up with it. And um, this is something all Bible teachers and all Christians really have to guard ourselves against. And that is against um, loving ideas because they're your own. <laughs> and you get this where like as a pastor, you're, you have, you have a, 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 a message or point you're going to make about a passage. And as you're studying, you read a commentary. And this is how you know that you have this problem, right? As I have had this problem. <laughs> you're reading a commentary and the commentary says the same thing as you were going to say. Like they make the same observation that you were going to make. And, it, and you get sad because you're like, boy, I thought that was kind of mine. 
And this was, especially when I was younger, I felt this way. And, um, and now I look at it and I go, oh no, this is confirmation like others. So I, I would look for others who have made the same observation, you know, generally as a good thing, uh, not as a bad thing, but, um, yeah, let's just look briefly at revelation 11. Um, and then we'll move on to the next question here. Okay. Then I was giving a measuring rod, like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So it's kind of like uh, Moses with right with the Exodus. Uh, they have the power to kind of do these things that Moses was doing during that time to show God's judgment over, over uh, Egypt. But this is um, happening centered out of Jerusalem. Um, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast will, that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. We're right here. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been tormented. Uh, have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Notice that the language is still two individuals. Like all throughout the passage, it feels like two individuals. So far, I'm, you know, there, there could be a shift if there was if there was meant to be an image of a larger group, um, but I haven't seen that yet. Okay, but after the three and a half days, after three and a half days, um, a breath of life from God will uh, enter them and they stood up on their feet and, f and great fear fell on those who saw them. So they, they have like a resurrection. Uh, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And this is where you feel like you get that rapture connection. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. And um, this is kind of the end of this section. Uh, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Okay. Um, there's In the passage, every time that these two witnesses are mentioned, it feels like two individuals. They're even called two prophets. And I don't know if there's a time where a group of people in scripture is called a prophet individually. I, I don't know that that happens. So I'm going to count that as a strike against the idea. But one of the things that you saw is these olive, <clears throat> these olive trees. And you connected this to Romans 11. So um, here, I think we, we can sometimes overlap biblical passages that maybe aren't intended to be overlapped. So my opinion, and <clears throat> Robert, I could be wrong, but here's my thoughts. The, 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 the way to show that the overlap doesn't belong is to sh demonstrate that there's a disconnect, that these, these ideas, these visuals are being used in different ways in these different passages. Um, a, a way to show that your overlap, Revelation 11 and Romans uh, 11, are, is correct is to show that there's a connect between those two passages. Okay, that's, that's the basic idea. I'm going to make the case for the disconnect here. These are the two olive trees. Well, in, in Romans 11, there is one olive tree. There's one tree. There's, and we're grafted into the tree. And so if Romans 11's theology is important to us, right, that, that, that Jews and Gentiles are grafted into one, then it would be very strange here in Revelation to see them now separated into two olive trees. 
so that the visual doesn't work. It, it's um, mixed metaphors. These are different things. These are two olive trees, and they're also what? Two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Okay, so they they represent uh, the church in a sense. Um, so th there's a representation there. This is the only verse that could be seen as um, potentially making them a group of people, but I think the whole rest of the context pushes that there's there are two individuals. So <clears throat> to summarize, <laughs> um, Romans uh, Revelation 11 really seems to push that there's just two individuals. That seems to be very clear in the fact that they're they're like Moses. They're calling things out. Their dead bodies lie in the streets. How could they be in uh, you know in one city? You'd have all the Christians, Jews and Gentiles, all together. Like, you see how that doesn't really, the visual doesn't work with a group, but it works with individuals. Two people in the street works, but millions and millions, that would be a challenge. Um, the um, And the overlap with Romans seems to be a disconnect because we have two olive trees breaking the image of our unity in Christ if, if we try to make them the same. Those are my thoughts on that, Robert. Uh, Porfirio has a question. <clears throat> Does Romans 6.22 preach salvation by works? John Piper claims that this verse suggests that at final salvation, our works coming from sanctifi sanctification results in eternal life. Um, this is one of those issues that is worth like serious time. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, and I'm not entirely familiar with John Piper's teaching on this. I've heard I've heard a video where he talked about it, but he has this this thing, as I understand it, partly, where he talks about like final justification. Personally, I'm, I'm like allergic to that terminology. I find it very problematic. Um, but let's look at the passage at hand. And basically, for those who don't know, uh, the idea is, are, are my works at any stage um, meriting my salvation, right? Or something along those lines. I'd be interested how he distinguishes that from uh, Roman Catholic teaching. I'm backing up a little bit so we can get some context. Romans 6.17. And then we'll get to uh, 6.22 here. Let me just make sure that is the right verse. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to, that, to the standard of teaching uh, to which you were committed and have become set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, but for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Now, generally, um, I'm going to look at my, my view here, and this is like a Protestant view. Um, sanctification is not a cause of eternal life, but it's part of the package. It's not that it's not included, right? It's just that where you put it in the formula. Uh, so like the simplistic way is um, faith plus works equals, you know, um, eternal life. And people are going to nitpick on that term here, but I mean, all the benefits of heaven, <laughs> um, faith plus works that, that that's the sort of the, the Catholic, you know, they're going to say initial salvation comes by just faith, but final and, and eternal life. Eventually what you're going to have there, that's going to be faith plus works, um, uh, plus merit and, uh, merit is, is, is something you're doing and that's entitling you to something. So, um, the other way to look at this is to change the formula and say faith, purely faith in Christ equals eternal life, but that also entails sanctification. Like on the opposite side of the equal sign, that's where the sanctification lies. Does that make sense? Where you put the equation, is it a result or is it a cause? Um, maybe a more complicated Roman Catholic would be version would be faith equals 
Um, so uh, it would be it would be two equal signs. Anyway, I'll just move on. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Um, so if we're going to take Romans 6, 22, I, I guess off the cuff, I'm going to ask you guys to think, why would I think that this passage entails my good works actually give me et eternal life? Like, I don't, I, maybe I'm being a bit obtuse, not trying to, I just don't see the need for it as I read Romans six twenty two. right? The fruit you get lead the fruit of, of what? being set free from sin and having become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The end of sanctification is eternal life. Now, I guess someone could try to suggest, but it's it's not just a process. Sanctification is a process and the end of it is eternal life, but it's actually the cause, right? But here, the, the fruit is what's leading. Sanctification feels to me here in this passage to be on the opposite side of the equal sign than say that the Roman Catholic would have it. It's a result of my salvation, not its cause. Um, <clears throat> a couple other translations. It's always good to look at other translations. Uh, Romans 6.22 in the NASB. That was the ESV before. It says, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Um, NASB seems to be translating it in a way that even more separates the two, right? Where it seems like the eternal life is part of the equation after after having become saved. It's not earning my final eternal life. It's rather, it's about chronology, not purchasing. <laughs> Does that make sense? The, you know, I'm being sanctified now, but the, in, the, the future of it is eternal life. That's the chronology. NIV says, um, uh, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. So sanctification is part of the package. That's guaranteed in Romans 6.22. I don't see why it's required as something I'm going to do, especially if you think, as I do, um, that upon death, I have radical and, and fast sanctification that takes place because it's not me who does it, right? God delivers me from this body, right? Romans 15, I mean, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about it. It said, consider this, what you guys think about this as radical sanctification. 1 Corinthians 15 says that I will put off this body of flesh, this body of corruption. And Paul associates my sin, my sinful desires with this body, right? There's like a metaphor that's going on there, the connection. <clears throat> and that's going to be put off. And I'm going to put on a new body, right? That is, that is righteous and holy. That is like Jesus. That is radical sanctification. And I'm not even doing anything to make it happen. So, you could say that sanctification is guaranteed on chronologically on the path to eternal life, to say heaven or or or, or resurrection and, and that eternal state we are in then afterwards. But that doesn't mean that it is the cause. It could be how part of the package. That's how I view it, and I don't I don't see why Romans six twenty two is a problem for that personally. Okay, so sorry if I'm missing something. If there's a point that someone makes that that is really relevant, that oh that should be addressed. I'm just not on the top of my head. 
So the next question comes from Graham Pearson. Graham Pearson. Oh, and I'll mention real quick, guys, before we do question four. Um, again, I'm doing. I'm speaking at a conference, an apologetics conference, um, about. Um, well, it's about apologetics. Like I'm there, Sean McDowell's there, and Natasha Crane's going to be there, and some others. And there's a link in the description down below. This is coming in February. And if you're going to be in the Palm Springs area in California, you're welcome to come. And yes, I expect a bunch of California jokes in the comments because I've learned that's what happens <laughs> when I mention it. Um, but the uh, but the 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 conference can be attended or it could be watched online. You could do that as well. All the details are down below. I'm not putting on the conference. I'm just one of the speakers. And then I'll upload afterwards my content, my specific stuff onto my channel. At least that's the plan. Um, okay, follow. Uh, Graham Pearson says, Mike, thank you for your wisdom and faithful, bold teaching. Well, thank you. I, I, I say you're welcome for whatever wisdom and faithful, bold teaching I've given you. And I apologize for all the times I failed to do that. Um, how would you interpret the end of Matthew 11 in a non-Calvinist way? Since it seems at a quick read to me that God grants people faith. Let's look at Matthew 11 together. I'm just scrolling through Matthew 11 to find uh, hopefully the section that you're looking for. Um, um, if you guys ever want me to look at specific passages, it's great to include the verses themselves so that I just can be, get there a little quicker when you're putting your comments in the questions. Um, or your questions in the comments, whichever one you, you choose to do. <laughs> the Father revealed in the Son. Okay. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All these things, all things have been committed to me, to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, we happen to be in the NIV still, um, and that bothers some of you, but I'm going to stick with it at least for this question. <laughs> and can I say on a side note, you might not like the NIV. Many, many people don't. Many other people very much like it. I personally found that the criticisms against it were overblown, although there are, of course, some things you can validly criticize. Um, but it's not helpful to call it the not inspired version. If that's you, please stop. You're not helping anything <laughs> or anyone. <laughs> All right. Um, in, in defense of the NIV that I don't even really use. All right. Um, so at that time, he says, he praises the Father, right? Because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Then there's another phrase in there that might be relevant to this. The, the idea here is, right, um, hey, like God's just the one. He's deciding who to show salvation to. He hides it from some. He reveals it to others. I think what would make this Calvinist is if that's the whole story. If the entire story, the only factors are I'm going to reveal to some and I hide it from others and that's it, end of story. But as you look at Matthew, John, as you look at Hebrews, you look at these other passages in the scripture, it seems that there's more d details there. So the non-Calvinist doesn't reject the idea that God might hide from some, right, and reveal to others, but I think we would reject that that's the whole story. So my observation would just be there's more to it than this, which is things like, did they respond in faith to what God already revealed? Were they full of arrogance and pride? Were they unwilling to come, as Jesus says, as little children? Because he's not even talking about real little children here. He's talking about those who will come humbly and dependent and trusting so they have humility and faith. That's what he's talking about. Those who will come weak 
and trust in the grace of Christ. And those who are arrogant, wise, and learned, they're not going to. Okay, so there's there's a human free will decision that I see still uh, possible in that passage. <clears throat> Verse 27, he says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay, well, then, <clears throat> reading it as a Calvinist, you, you could say, look, you only will know the Son if God chooses. But again, I'm going to say the, the, what may sound convenient, what may sound even annoying to somebody, is me again saying, is that the entire story? To whom does the Son choose to reveal? Is, he just, is it just pure, arbitrary, or um, apparently arbitrary, mis mysterious election? Where it's like, God, I'm going to save that one, not that one. I'm just choosing. Or is he choosing the ones who will humble themselves, who will turn to Christ, who will have faith in Christ, so that the choice is based upon, at least partly, on the person's trust and faith, that them, that them coming as a child and not as somebody who's arrogant or proud, but as someone who's like a child, like weak and powerless. Those who come to Jesus, humble and trusting, these are the ones to whom the Son chooses to reveal himself, so that I see God's choice and man's choice in the passage Right? Then he offers this. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Now, if you're going to take really in a wooden fashion, take this part, the top part here, This only the only people who get saved is the ones Jesus chooses to be saved. But then the very next statement is him giving a wide open call. Everybody who's weary and burdened, I'm going to give you rest. He's like, come to me. But really what he meant was only the ones I'm picking. I think it's a genuine invitation for everyone to come. And he's chosen those who do end up coming humbly and lowly and willing to um, to receive. And so yeah, th that would be my interpretation of that. Uh, for what it's worth, I, I submit it for your consideration. <clears throat> Number five, followers of Christ forever has a question. There's a trend in many young male Christians where they are wearing earrings, painting nails, fixing eyebrows, and putting on makeup. Help me think biblically about this as it's a bit shocking. Um, <clears throat> okay, so let me just back up and, and offer a biblical principle that I think is really important, um, although it's not the gospel. So so it's secondary, but it's very valuable. And, it, it, it you know, um, harm will come upon us, right, if, if we don't pay attention to these things. So... Biblically speaking, okay, Old Testament and New Testament, there is a difference. I'm not going to answer your question right away. First, let me say this principle that I will use to answer the question. So biblically speaking, there's a big difference between male and female, and it's not just in our genetics, right? There's a difference there, but there's, there's a difference in our, um, our function and our role and our interaction with each other. And that difference is important to maintain. Now, this is often abused uh, with, with men over overusing authority, using it wrongly, things like that. But the abuse of a thing doesn't make the thing wrong. I mean, so, for example, government is often abusive. Government has done atrocious, horrible things. But I would never use this for a case that we should reject all government. Right? Like, we don't use the abuse to rule out the principle. The principle, biblically, biblically is that there is a male and female. God made the male and female for a purpose. And this demonstrates Christ in the church in marriage. It demonstrates um, God's design in nature. And so we have these rules, like in Leviticus, he tells them, and now we're not under the law, but we can learn from it. He tells the men not to dress like women, 
Isn't that interesting? He's like, don't dress, don't put on the garb of women. Now, <clears throat> you know, if you go to, if you go to like Scotland at certain, certain time, you know, you have men wearing a kilt, but that's the kilt might look to a Westerner like a, a girl's skirt, but it's not, it's still male clothing, but the principle is consistent. There is such a thing as man's clothes and girls, women's clothes, right? There's a, a, such a thing as the way a man presents himself in, in our culture and the way a, a woman does. We live in a time where we're, there are many people deliberately and they feel that they're on the right side of history by trying to tear down all of these differences. Now, I think in some cases, the differences in a culture are just an expression of the culture. They're not that important. I don't think it matters if a girl wears pants or not. But here's how you apply the principle. If you're in a culture where a, where a woman wearing pants is masculine, then you probably shouldn't. Do you see how it's, it's the overlap of the principle trying to apply it into the culture? We are in a culture where, where men are not always, but oftentimes are deliberately trying to look more feminine and women are deliberately trying to look more masculine, not because there's pants in the women's section at the store, right? I don't care if girls wear pants. <laughs> fine go ahead but i prefer you wear girl pants <laughs> like that's what i'm saying right like there's there's a masculinity that should be preserved and a femininity that should be preserved but our culture is so wacky and weird on these issues it's like we can't even think about it right we want to celebrate femininity but then deny that it's even a thing like the, the feminism's like celebrate femininity and then the, the trans agenda is like there is no such thing <laughs> but i'm going to do everything i can to look like a woman but it's all, it's just culture, guys. It's just culture. Well, no, there's an overlap. There's a principle in the culture. So how does this apply into our culture today? Um, I think that um, a guy who's interested in putting on, fixing his eyebrows and painting nails, putting on earrings and stuff like this, or makeup, should ask himself, are you at all fuzzy on your masculine identity and that that's unique and it's different than, than a feminine one? And if they're a little fuzzy on it, I wouldn't want to deal with that issue, right? Because this is just an expression of that. It's like a symptom of a problem. Um, on the other hand, I, I realize that not every guy who puts on an earring, not every guy who even paints his nails is necessarily doing it because they're violating this principle. There may be other things going on. Cultures shift and change over time. I'm trying to be open to that, but the principle is the thing I care about. So, um, I'm not entirely sure how to apply it because I would want to see the specific students or, or leaders or people that you have in mind as you're talking about these issues and try to apply it to them in their culture where they live. God give you wisdom on that. But yeah, if male's not good and female's not good and good for them to be different from each other, then we're, we're losing something important. That's not only in the Old Testament law, it's not only in before the law in Genesis, made a male and female. There's a reason for this. This is, this is the, the, the creation of, of mankind. It's trying to set up standards for us in some good ways. Um, and then we have in the New Testament as well that we, we have the affirmation of proper masculinity and femininity without the abuses that are so often seen. All right, number six, you are loved has a question. Hey, Mike, I just turned 18 today. Well, happy birthday. Uh, and for the past few months, I've been struggling with the transition into adulthood. Got any advice for someone trying to become the man God wants them to be? Um, ooh, that, well, that's one I've struggled with for years. Um, without sharing you guys a lot of stories that, that I don't want to share because I don't want to hurt my family who I love. <laughs> um, I, uh, I didn't really have close male relationships when I was young. And so I didn't really have a lot of good male role models or any, and, um, it made it confusing for me 
at that young age to even know what it meant to be a man. If you asked me, well, what does it mean to be a man? I would have been like, I don't know. I don't know. So my encouragement to you is a few things. One is read the book of Proverbs. Read the book of Proverbs. Um, it gives you, it's, it's, it's instructions in so many ways to like a young person coming into adulthood. And in particular, it's more directed towards a guy. Not that women can't learn tons from it, but that tends to be the direction of that particular book. <clears throat> my son, right? Listen to your father's commands and all this kind of thing. So there's there's the book of Proverbs that will help you grow in what it means to be a man. I'd also suggest that um, closely connected with manhood is arrogance, pride, and power that are not actually part of manhood. What I mean here is, <clears throat> I see it all the time. What's viewed as macho is often sinful. What's manly is not a guy who can punch his fist into somebody and hurt them real bad. What's manly is a guy that gets up and he goes to work when he doesn't feel like it and he gets home and he helps his family and he still takes care of them. What's manly is a guy who does what he doesn't want to do because he just is supposed to do it. One of the manliest things I've seen was, was a guy and I'm, and this doesn't mean it's not womanly, but it, but because there can be qualities that are in both. But one of the manliest things I've seen was a man who, um, who I knew who was working a lot doing ministry and he was just, he was just constantly working. He was working full time. He was doing ministry, a lot of ministry and he was just very busy and he had a wife and two kids. And I remember noticing this of him. When I was pretty, I was in my twenties and he says, um, or I asked him, I said, Kevin, um, it seems like you just do things without even asking whether you want to do them or not. Do you ever ask yourself, do I even want to do this? And he went, no just things need to get done. That's manly. <laughs> like, do you get what I mean? That's manly. Manly isn't a guy who can throw a punch. Manly is a guy who can take a punch. What I'm suggesting here is that as you think about what's manly, that you remove from it the cultural baggage of ungodliness and pride and, and um, that kind of thing and realize that manliness is what's represented by um, self-sacrificial love, by putting others first, by being willing to labor and work in obscurity right? Because it's the right thing to do by being the kind of guy who, when your kids grow up and they hit 30, they look back and go, wow, my dad was amazing. I had no idea. He was such a good dad. He was just so stable and reliable and trusting. And I didn't have to look at him to see if he was mad to know if I could talk to him that day or not, right? Like that's what I think manly is a man who's in self-control, who, who exhibits the fruits of the spirit. Much of this is going to overlap onto what's womanly because it's about being an adult, a mature adult. So I hope that some of those things help. Um, as a young man, I'd encourage you not to compete with other young men in your head because it will break those relationships that are meant to be there to build you up. But you will see people who could actually be there to encourage you and help you and be examples to you as threats to you. I know that sounds like a weird thing to say. I'm just speaking from personal experience <laughs> to see them only as um, people who you can appreciate and not people who you have to you have to be competing against, that kind of thing. So there's some advice to hopefully becoming the man God wants you to be. Um, set your standards no lower than scripture does. Don't look to the world or, or macho guys or movies or guys who just walk around like they got it all together as your examples, but, but look to um, scripture. All right, number seven, this is from Jeff Wide. He says in the NIV, in John 9, 41, Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin what does he mean by blind in this context? Does this blindness also cover sin? 
Okay, great question. Let's go to the passage. John 9, 41. And I will look at the NIV. I think a variety of translations is good for us to use. Um, so I'm, I'm going to back up. Notice I always do this, you guys. I always back up. This is what you should do too, right? Like you back up and read the context. This is just how you think biblically. I try to find like, oh, here's a section beginning in verse 35. Jesus, and you can ignore the title. Meh. Right? Because you haven't read the passage yet. Don't let the title tell you what it's about before you've read it. The titles are added by by, by the um, translators. Um, Jesus heard that they had th uh, thrown him out. And this was, this was a man who was born blind that Jesus healed earlier on in John. And they kick him out of the synagogue, I believe, this, if I remember the story correctly. So they kicked him out and he went and found him. And he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe him. Yeah, the guy was blind and Jesus healed him, but he didn't stick around. So he didn't get to actually find out more about Jesus. So, so Jesus shows up. Do you believe in the son of man? Which is Jesus's really important Davidic title he's got there. Um, so Jesus says, you have now seen him. And that's beautiful because the guy was blind and, he, and he's telling as he's looking at Jesus, he's like, you've now seen him. Like you've seen me. Now, you know, the guy that healed you. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Okay, he's obviously making a metaphor here. The blind is going to see, but the blind man didn't catch the story. If we back up the story a bit, he didn't just go from blindness to sight. He went from not knowing who the son of man was to seeing the son of man and believing in him. So he went from a physical blindness to physical sight. And he also went from a spiritual, spiritually being unaware of who the son of man was. Right? He had only partial knowledge of the revelation of God through the Old Testament, but he didn't know Jesus yet to knowing Jesus and seeing him and worshiping him. So the blind has seen in physical and spiritual ways. And then those who see will become blind. So the blind saw spiritually and those who see physically, they'll become blind. There is, that is those who have more capacities, who seem to be the, the ones with the knowledge and with the wisdom, they will be seen as blind. They'll, be, they'll become blind or unaware of the spiritual realities of Christ. Now we're going to read where you have your question. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? Okay, the Pharisees are, like most people, very aware when they're being passive-aggressively insulted. <laughs> And Jesus kind of did that here. It's not always wrong to be that way. Right? Jesus does it. Um, mostly, I do, you know, whenever I do that, it's wrong. But, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, what are we blind to? Uh, and they're trying to confront him. Usually they do this because they want, they want to get him to say something directly to them to get him in trouble. Jesus says then, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. So again, there's a play, there's a metaphor in the verse between physical blindness and spiritual blindness. I think when Jesus, my opinion now, I think when Jesus says, if you were blind, I think he means spiritually unaware. If you were, in fact, blindness or vision is the ability to see a thing, right? So if you did not have the ability to see the truth of who Christ is, you wouldn't be guilty of rejecting him. That, that's the guilt. Ultimately, the guilt is, is associated with whether they accept or reject Jesus. Th this has implications for those who are mentally incapable of, of comprehending the truths of Christ. For little children and babies who are not, they don't have the vision, the, the awareness, the ability to understand and comprehend the gospel. I have a video on the salvation of children that I talk about this kind of thing. 
So I think that's what he's saying. If you were phys- if you were spiritually or mentally incapable of comprehending who I am, fine, you would you would uh, not be guilty. But you now you claim you can see, uh, your guilt remains. Here's you, not only rejecting Jesus, not being aware of him, not not only not being aware of Jesus, but being aware of him, saying that you have discernment about him and rejecting him. That's a higher guilt, and there are different degrees of guilt. And uh, anyway, I think that that answers the question. I think it probably makes pretty good sense. Um, you asked finally, uh, last part of your question, Jeff, was, does this blindness also cover sin? And again, I want to just differentiate between covering sin or, or or getting rid of sin or, you know, that kind of thing versus just making someone unaccountable. So um, a person who cannot comprehend something isn't covered for the sin of rejecting the thing. Because they didn't reject it. They just couldn't comprehend it. Their blindness made them unaccountable. So if I hold up a stop sign and a, a, a person with vision walks by, they're accountable for not stopping. A blind person walks by, they're not accountable for anything because they, they couldn't see it. But if I said stop, then they could hear it. They, you see, this is just about accountability, not how I deal with my sin. There just isn't a sin for the person who simply didn't know. Um, not that there aren't other sins. There isn't the sin of rejecting Jesus, though. There isn't the sin of purposely turning away from Christ um, without the knowledge of him. There are other things God reveals to you about creation, about conscience, and, and we, we can be judged on those things even when we don't know Christ. I feel like I'm bringing up questions in your mind right now, uh, listeners, about what about those who never hear the gospel? And I have a teaching I've done on that. If I could get uh, Sarah or one of the mods to put in the comments right now, the video, what about those who uh, never hear the gospel? And I'll put a link down below too. That's a good follow-up for this question for those who are interested. Computer games critical. By the way, no more questions. We have got them all. We got all the questions ready for today. So um, from uh, YouTube user, computer games critical, he asks or she asks, when should extra biblical prophecy be accepted or rejected? I don't know how to discern or test the spirits and I don't want to be overly dismissive even if the claims seem astonishing. I like your attitude. Um, I like your attitude a lot. I, I don't want to reject, right? We have scripture that says, do not despise prophecy. Uh, in fact, let me take us there because it's, we are not alone <laughs> in our in our concerns about these things, okay? So they're dealing with this in the first century too. Let's take ourselves there right now. Um, I think we're looking at the ESV at the moment. So um, back it up just a little bit here. Okay, he, he gives a series of instructions to people. So I guess starting in verse 16, kind of. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. There is a good word for you today. Surprise, little application for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. Not for all circumstances, in all circumstances. Whatever I'm going through, there's something I can be thankful for. Even if it's not about what I'm going through, there's something I can thank God for right now. A little, little wonderful spiritual thing to do. Um, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. I'm, I'm, see, look, here's me. I have New King James in my head. Verse 19. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, no. What do I have in my head? Was it NIV? Ah, whatever. That's why I reverse the words sometimes. Uh, do not quench the spirit. Okay. Principle number one. Don't quench the spirit. Don't don't try to put out the things the spirit's doing. Don't try to stop the things the Holy Spirit's doing. And what's the context? Well, spiritual gifts. Do not despise prophecies. 
There are many of us who've heard weird prophecies, people who were self-willed, they were coming from their own hearts, or they were actually spiritually scary people, right? And they gave prophecies that were wrong. We've all seen Kenneth Copeland's, the or maybe you haven't seen it, the remix of Kenneth Copeland, <laughs> where they put to music him uh, blowing COVID-19 away. I blow, I blow. Right? If you haven't seen that, you could look it up. It's the, it's the weirdest thing in the world. Um, but our natural response to this can be that we just despise prophecy altogether. Forget it. I'm just, forget the gifts of the spirit. Forget these things. Uh, I despise them altogether. Um, I'm not saying every cessationist, every person who doesn't like think that the gifts of the spirit are, are operating regularly today, that they are doing this. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it can be a temptation for some of us to do this. Okay. There are cessations who have no despising of prophecy, really. There's just a belief that it's not something that's active today. Um, I, I disagree. But I think this is important. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecy. So the first step for you is, and I think you've already, you're already doing this, um, computer games critical. You're already, you're already saying, I don't want to be dismissive overly here. I don't want to despise prophecies. Like when someone says, I think I have a word from the Lord for you. I don't want to immediately be like, no, you don't, weirdo. I don't want to do that automatically, right? I want to be open. But there's an alternative problem, which is we are overly gullible. We should test everything and hold fast what is good. This is one of the problems I have with, with some of the modern prophetic movement the, the, within charismatic circles is this idea that not only are we not going to despise prophecies, we're also not going to test them. Right? And, and so there's a process. This is Notice this is all part of the same sentence. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. There's your process. You, you, someone says, I have, I have something for you. I believe God's shared, given me to tell, you, to tell you. And you say, what is it? And they go, here it is. You don't just receive it. You don't just reject it, right? You test it. Okay, your next question is, how do I test it? I think that some of the ways we test the prophecy are, is it true to the person of Christ? Is it true to the teaching of scripture? And um, if it's um, uh, coming from a good source, and by that I mean a total stranger on the street just telling you they, they have a word from God for you is not nearly as impactful and reliable to you. Okay, maybe it's God, maybe it's not, but you're supposed to test it. How do you test it? If you don't know the person, like they're a total stranger. And this is one of the problems with the YouTube prophets. Okay, there's people on YouTube who come, God's given me a word. God spoke to me and here's the word for you guys. And it's like, well, um, that might be the case. And I'm not discounting, I'm despising the prophecy. But prophecy back in the day, in the New Testament times, happened in a community of people who knew each other. And this person's reliability was on record. They gave a word. And everybody knew whether it had happened or not. And they had a habit of testing all things. And so people who were unreliable were known to be unreliable. Were probably not considered someone they should listen to. And there's people who had a track record of speaking from the Lord and being accurate and right. And so they were more trustworthy. And so I, if you have no personal relationship, you can sometimes just take a prophecy from someone and just put it on the shelf and say, I don't know, Lord, maybe you could show me if that's true or not in the future. If they're... True to the person of Jesus, true to the teachings of scripture, and from a source that seems reliable. And if not all, if, if you don't have all th three of those things, you don't necessarily have to throw it out. Maybe it's, well, if you were the first two is not right, you could throw it out. But if the third one's not there, you just don't know the person. You could always set it on the shelf and say, Lord, I'll, I'll need you to confirm this to me somehow because I just don't know. At least that's, I think, the approach I would take um, as someone who does want to receive prophecy I've had people say, send me messages. Mike, the Lord gave me a word and this, this. And I'll read it and I'm like, I don't think so. And 
I don't know you. And that sounds weird. You know, <laughs> so I rarely have had that happen, but it's happened. Test all things, but don't obsess over what's bad. Just hold fast to what is good. Number nine, see sites says, or seats, S-E-I-T-Z, however you pronounce that name. If a husband's rule over his wife was a curse of the fall, why is it taught as God ordained in the New Testament? Are husbands and wives called to submit to each other under the new covenant? Okay, this is a complicated question because one is, of course, about the entire teaching of the New Testament. Um, um, I do believe that that husbands and wives and their, their same equal in value different in role seems thoroughly taught irrefutably taught in the new testament i think that seems to be the case in marriage in particular right i think that is the case um um the husband's rule over his wife i think rule is a weird word to use in modern english because we never use that word for anything except like domineering almost abusive thing. We just don't use the word, right? The, the word doesn't have the meaning of the simple meaning it used to have. So, so I would, I would say, yeah, I do have a teaching on husbands and wives. Um, I have a teaching on like, uh, maybe mods, one you could put in there in the comment section for husbands. I have a teaching there for wives. I have a teaching there about how these things play out, at least in my understanding of scripture, as I was teaching through first Peter, uh, at the time. And, um, uh, why is it, okay, was it a result, a result of the curse of the fall? Um, I'm going to get into this more when I do my study on women in ministry. I do not think it was just a result of a curse from the fall. I don't think so. I don't think that the different roles are just post-fall. But your next question is, um, why is it taught as God ordained in the New Testament? Okay, exactly. <laughs> I agree. Um, aren't husbands and wives called to submit to each other under the New Covenant? Ephesians 5 does talk about husbands and wives, excuse me, before it talks about husbands and wives, Ephesians 5.22, I think it is, it says submitting to one another in love. And some take that to mean um, that this is this is the theme. All of us submit to each other in love, which effectively means either no one really submits or we submit in like this sort of trading fashion or something else. And um, then when it says husbands love your wives and wives submit to your husbands, it really means husbands and wives submit to each other. I think that this is a painful and forced reading of scripture and I'm shocked that people put it forward <laughs> to be honest. So yeah, you guys will hear more uh, when I do the stay on women in ministry. I'm not teaching on marriage, but it does those passages come up and I'll be addressing those as well. Mickey Foley um, 0105 says in Matthew 6, 5, Jesus is not to pray like people in public who try to get attention. Would that include praying and worshiping in church? Um, okay, so we know that that's definitely not the case. And part of the reason for this is because um, Jesus prayed in public, right? Right. He, he prays, right? We, we just read a passage where he's like, pray, I th I, you know, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and you've revealed them to babes. That was a public prayer he did in the presence of even Pharisees, right? So there's a... Um, there was, there was public prayer from Jesus. So all public prayer isn't inherently wrong. Another example is in 1 Corinthians, Paul's giving them instructions on how prayer and worship take place publicly. I think it's important that we pray together. Um, when, they, when the disciples were praying for Paul, uh, for Peter, he was in prison. They were gathered together praying publicly. When um, in uh, Acts chapter 3 or 4, 
where they were beaten for preaching Jesus and they were told you cannot preach Jesus anymore. They gathered together. They were publicly praying. And that's when the Holy Spirit came freshly and empowered them to be bold to share the gospel. When they were gathered in Acts 2 and speaking in tongues, like that was a public prayer gathering. It was very, a very public demonstration. So that would seem to be impossible from every example we have. But in Matthew, where Jesus talks about prayer, um, here we go. The um, passage is Matthew 6, 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Okay. A hypocrite is a faker. <laughs> You're faking. You're not real. Um, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners. And here's their goal, that they may be seen by others. Praying in public's not wrong. Praying in public to be seen praying in public is wrong. And that's a subtle heart issue that God knows and we need to evaluate ourselves about. When I pray in public, am I doing it for people to see me praying in public? Do I like that? Or there's a similar thing where it's the same issue, but it's reversed, which is I will not pray in public because I'm afraid of being embarrassed while trying to pray in public because I can't impress people. So I'm going to just do nothing because I don't want to. It's all about my reputation. It's about how I look. I think that we we miss the heart of prayer when we're praying in public for the public and not for the Lord. Um, so yeah, if you love to pray that you may be seen by others and people go, oh, that was a wonderful prayer. Thank you for that prayer. Oh, so powerful. And you're like, oh, I really like that. Like there's a heart issue there that's concerning. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who's sees in secret will reward you. Um, this is typical of Jesus's teaching. He's offering, um, people often use the term hyperbole for Jesus's teaching. And there's a sense in which maybe it's hyperbolic. To me, a, a better term, at least in this case, would just be um, speaking in extremes so you'll get the point, right? So it's not exactly hyperbole when he says like, go to your room and shut the door, but he's using an extreme example. If you don't pray alone and you only pray in public, why are you really praying? You know, that there's a question we could ask. When you pray, he says also, do not Keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For, why do they do it? Because they think they'll be heard for their many words. Some people think that prayer is like, if I say it so many times, then it's going to be more powerful because I said the words a lot. Like it's a magic spell. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask. Anyway, I hope that that helps answer and give some clarity there. Uh, Joshua Dent says, Psalm 211, what does the psalmist mean by this verse in its non-Messianic context? Psalm 211. Uh, 12. Okay, we're going to read all of Psalm 2 to get the context here. So, again, this is thinking biblically is about just going back and reading the whole passage all the time. Um, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The anointed here is going to be the ruling king whom God is setting up to rule over the other kings of the earth. And they're rejecting and rebelling against him. So there's an obvious messianic context here. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Um, so we don't want them to rule. We want to run our own lives. Um, he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, 
As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So all this is about, there's this Jewish king God is putting on Zion. And that king is going to rule over all of the nations. He'll be the Jewish, like, is, is, is Israel leader who rules over all the earth. That he's the head, not the tail, so to speak. This is obviously ultimately about Jesus. No other Jewish king can be said to have ever fulfilled this, truly. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. And there's a, there's a, there's a connection to the sonship that's here. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This king is going to control all of the world. You shall break them in, with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And I love this. Verse 12 is one of my favorite verses. Kiss the sun. And this here, it, it's not romantic. It, it's, it's, it's yielding, a, a yielding submission with like a sense of, loyalty fealty uh, obedience not not just like cowering but but instead of fighting against you i i yield to you i give my my my, my love to you in in a in a good sense um kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is kindled blessed all who take refuge in him okay so in its non-messianic context <laughs> If you take away the, mess, the mess, messianic stuff, it's just, it's got a bunch of holes in it. Um, and this is the case in a lot of scripture. A lot of the Old Testament will have statements that even though they're talking about descendants of David, right, it just doesn't really work fully. It's just, it's incomplete. There's all these empty pieces until you see Jesus in this passage. And that's how it feels here. If it's just about, say, Solomon, then it's, it's, it's beyond hyperbole. Right? The nations are raging and the people are plotting a vain thing. Like, when did all the kings of the earth, because David's writing, you know, if this is about Solomon coming in, then, um, then assuming David's writing this, then what, what is the point of all the kings of the earth fighting against him and wanting to come against him and, and how he's going to take possession of all the ends of the earth? This is, this is set in the overall prof prophetic drama of Israel and what God has done and will do in the future, ultimately through Israel. It feels much bigger than any one king Israel's ever had. That, that's what I'm suggesting. Outside of the Messianic context, the passage feels like such extreme hyperbole that it stops making a lot of sense. When you look at it in the lens of Christ, you go, it makes total sense. Your personal obedience to Christ is the thing that will save you and bring you into his kingdom instead of being uh, judged. Because here he is waiting on you to come and yield to him, to stop fighting him, to stop coming against him. And that makes all the sense in the world to me. Mike Grigas says, are we supposed to judge those outside of the church? And do we have any right to control slash direct what they do? Um... Depends on what you mean by judge. <laughs> it depends on what you mean by judge. So let's look at the passages. You you mentioned Romans 132 and 1 Corinthians 512. And so let's look at Romans 132. Uh, Though they know God's righteous decree, this is just the world in general, <laughs> that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I'm not sure why this passage is being brought up. I wish I could ask you your opinion on this. Um um, but, but okay, so God is going to judge them and they're being, the world in general is being re refuted or rebutted, rebuked for, um, 
not only doing wicked things, but approving of those things, which means this is this is a bad judgment. When you when you say something's good, that's bad. That's that's a judgment that's wrong. Um, the other passage you had was, and this is, I already know more direct. First uh, Corinthians five twelve. Paul, I, I literally just heard this verse used totally out of context recently by a teacher. Um, but Paul says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Right? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Okay, well, this is, this is clearly, this needs context, right? <laughs> I heard someone saying um, that they use this verse to say that as Christians, it's not my job to disapprove of the behaviors of people outside the church, because what do I have to do with judging outsiders? But here's where the word judging has different meanings. Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged. Matthew 5, there's that verse that's always taken out of context. With what judgment you use, you'll be judged. And then he talks about getting the plank out of your eye so you can use proper judgment to see the issue in your brother's eye. So Jesus is talking about self-righteous, um, ignoring your own issues and judging others. That, that's the kind of thing he's talking about. He doesn't mean not using discernment. Paul's talking about something totally different. First Corinthians 5 is about excommunication. When he says judging outsiders, he, he doesn't mean that. He means uh, not disapproving of their behaviors. He clearly disapproves of their behaviors, read, of the sinful behaviors, read anywhere in, in the New Testament where Paul's talking. But what he's talking about here is judgment in the sense of here's a believer who's in really serious sin. We've gone to them. We've tried to restore them patiently, graciously. They keep rejecting us. They keep continuing in it. They will not stop. It's serious sin. It's, 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 it's worse kind of sin than others. And we're going to excommunicate them. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to. Have them leave our fellowship until they repent. That's what judging outsiders is. That's the context. And to show you, he talks about this in starting in verse nine. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of the world, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you'd need to go out of the world. He's like, I don't mean like you guys become monks and you disassociate yourself with everyone who does sinful things. No, what 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 he meant was, as a church. You don't have as members, participating members of your church, people who are actively in gross immorality because it's going to, it's going to mess up your church. So it's excommunication. He goes, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater. He's clarifying so they understand who exactly to separate from and in what situations. Then he says, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? So that context there is um, judging means... I'm kicking you out of the church. <laughs> and so that just has no relation to the issue of judgment as we colloquially use it. Are you judging me? All we really mean is, are you disapproving of my behaviors? But wait a minute, that judgment is pretty rare. As far as when the word judge is used in scripture, it's very rarely, it does mean that sometimes, but it's not very often. More often it means something different. Um, Steve Grant says, I've just discovered my long-term girlfriend does not believe homosexuality is a sin, and I'm really struggling with anxiety regarding this. Is it wrong to break up over this, and how should I approach this? Steve and I am not uh, interested in trying to give you a, an ultimate decision. As much as I, I get it, you, 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 you're you looking for clarity, you're looking for an answer, you're looking for direction. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the wisdom to weigh in on the topic to say you should stay, you should break up, or to say that it's that it's just an up in the air thing. Um, I'm not. I would be rude and cruel to give you a pat answer 
that you would then guide your life on a massive life decision based on me knowing so little. Um, I'm not sure. I think that you need to think about a lot more of the things going on in the relationship, pray about it, consider it, maybe talk to like some Christian leaders in your life, which I hope you have some Christian godly people in your life you can discuss this with. Um, I guess the next step would be though to you you know talk to your girlfriend about this issue and see if you can cl clear it up for her. Hey, why do you feel this way? Why do you think that homosexuality is not a sin? What do you think about this passage? What do you think about this passage of scripture? Maybe before you go to the Bible, a good question. And for those of you who are who are struggling with this right now, as I as I talk about it, let me ask you this. And here's what you might ask her: Maybe, are you open to the idea that if the Bible says it's a sinful behavior, that it is a sinful behavior? What I'm asking is: Will the Bible be able to correct you on this? Is God allowed? This is a big deal. Is God allowed to tell you you're wrong on this issue, or are you? Is your mind so made up that even if God told you you're wrong, you're just going to look at him and go, no, you're wrong. <laughs> and if they're, if they're, if they just get that openness, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm open to God telling me that, it, that it's wrong. The next steps are to make clear that you're talking about homosexual actions and activities and not some identity someone's born with. We're not commenting on that. We're commenting here specifically on behaviors. When we confuse behaviors in people, people hear us say, you shouldn't engage in homosexual behaviors. Those are sinful things. And what they actually hear, what they really hear is not what we're saying. They hear us saying, I hate certain kinds of people because I'm a bigot. <laughs> You're like, that's obviously not what I'm saying. Nobody in their right mind would think I was saying that, but they've been, there's been like social conditioning for people to think such things. So you might need to work on the clarity on those issues. Yeah, God give you wisdom. Uh, Samia says, hi, Mike, I really appreciate your content. I'm a new born-again Christian, and I'd like to know, how does the Holy Spirit guide us? Oh, well, however he wants. Um, so, Samuel, we have like a living relationship with with God, so the Holy Spirit can guide you any way he wants. I mean, it's like, kind of like you ask a parent, how do you guide your kids? And you're like, well, this kid, I, I do it this way. That kid, I do it that way. And the Holy Spirit's inside of us, and so he's not always going to be like, Usually it's not going to be these audible things. I, I think it's a very rare thing that some people experience, but not, most don't. Um, so the Holy Spirit's going to guide you. Um, but there, I guess the bigger question for us is like, how do I know it's the Holy Spirit guiding me <laughs> and not, and not something else. Um, and so for that, we have like some tests, right? So when you get saved, maybe you have a desire to read the word, you have this appreciation and love for God and, and you want to worship him and, is the Holy Spirit part of that? Probably. Yeah, probably. That's part of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Um, so the desires of the Spirit, the desires of the Spirit are discussed here in Galatians 6. And so you could look at some of the behaviors that you're doing and you could see them as being in engaged or uh, led by the Spirit, right? We're led by the Spirit. So let me go down here to the fruit of the Spirit. Um, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are, these are things that the spirit is guiding you in, leading you in, bringing into your life through the, through the life that God has infused in you through the Holy Spirit. And of course, crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires, right? This is how I overcome the sinful temptations is I, I, through the power of the spirit can say no to those things. Those are some examples. Now, if what you're looking for is for the spirit to guide you in like, where do I go today? Who do I witness to? There's like, and you're thinking, I have these divine appointments. There's like specific people I'm supposed to talk to today. And then God, I have to like kind of follow the lead of the spirit. 
This to me, over time, I've come to think that this is not only not demonstrated in scripture anywhere that I'm aware of, but it creates weird things in your life as a Christian. Um, you see, if I'm expecting the spirit to guide me through urges and not through the fruit of the spirit, through ideas, I think I'm going to leave that light on. Maybe it's the Lord guiding me to leave that light on that this can can, doesn't always, but it can create some unhealthy things in a person where they start identifying their random thoughts with the leading of the spirit and then they can't tell the difference. So I try to be more grounded. <laughs> um, if God wants me to, 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 to know something, he can make it clear to me. I don't have to guess. And I've had times in my life personally where like even starting doing this content online, I've really felt an awareness from that I believe was from God that this was something I was supposed to do. Back when it, I had no followers, I didn't know what I was doing, and and my early stuff was not very good. <laughs> and I was just figuring it out. But there was this really strong conviction that I believe was the Holy Spirit. How did I know? Like, I just knew. Um, I'm sorry, I can't give you more clarity than that. <laughs> um, but if you find out in your track record that things you think are the Spirit of God end up not being, then you must learn from that, that experience and move forward. Colleen Cahill says, are there any good sources for ministering to seniors you can recommend? I mean, you know, Colleen, I'm so bad at resources like this because I tend to not use them ever. So I, I, I don't know. But what I will say this is, Colleen, um, look in the comments right now. If you guys know of any, like in the live chat, you know, go ahead and you can't share links, right? But you can share other things. Just go ahead and tell her about the resources that you think are good for ministering to seniors. I'm not really sure. I'd look for a ministry that does it and then ask them. Yeah. Sorry, I can't be of more help there, Colleen. Uh, number 16, Ben V says, are the biblical references to Sheol slash Hades necessarily hell? Some Christians, Christian traditions have it as the underworld with hell only being something after the resurrection. Ben, this is a complicated issue, especially because our English translations are, by tradition, fuzzy on these topics very often. Um, so if you look up the Greek words, you've got, like you mentioned, Sheol, Hades. Uh, Sheol is, is a Hebrew term, and it, it means like the ground. And it could also mean like a spiritual place where a soul goes. So it can mean both. It can mean either one. It's like the word grave, but they would use it for physical ground. Where, like, say, you bury someone in the ground. And they would also use it for other things, like uh, sort of like the spiritual location. Hades is a Greek word that seems to refer only to an intermediate state where people go before judgment, at least currently, on my understanding of theology. This stuff does get complicated. Um, your question, though, is are the biblical references to Sheol slash Hades necessarily hell? In my opinion, even uh, whether you take hell on in the um, in the conditionalist or the the eternal conscious torment or wh whichever version you take, either either side of that debate, hell is a future thing, not a present thing at all. So anytime Hades comes up in the Greek, which is most of the time in the New Testament when you have it re referred to, except for Revelation, mostly it's to my knowledge, it's talking about Hades, not hell. All right, that these are different things. So Hades in Revelation is cast into the lake of fire. That's that's hell. At least this stuff, this stuff gets complicated. So forgive me, you guys, for not getting getting more clarity on it for you. Um, some Christian traditions have it as the underworld with hell only being something after the resurrection. I, I think that's just the correct view. I think that although underworld is, is a weird term that I wouldn't 
put on there because I don't want to bring in Greek theology, you know, Romanesque Greek theology into the concept. Underworld seems like a loaded term I don't want to use personally. Yeah. So that's my view. Um, just preview for you guys, and this is going to frustrate you. I apologize ahead of time. After I do this woman in ministry study, after I teach through the entire book of Hebrews, it's going to take me 7,000 years. Then I'm going to do a study on the topic of hell, and I'm going to get into all these issues in a lot of detail. But I have tons and tons and tons of work before I can even start that. Okay, number 17, carried by the king asks, Hi, Pastor Mike, what would you say to a vicar who says that abortion isn't the biggest issue or problem for God as the babies will end up in heaven anyway? Well, I think that that guy has a weird way of thinking. <laughs> um, okay, some people, it seems to me, think with their gut uh, in a way that makes it difficult to talk to them. <laughs> um, I don't know if you can talk to the guy or not. When I hear that phrase, it sounds like the kind of thing where the guy says it, but he hasn't thought about it. And I would like to calmly have a discussion about it. Like, hey, what do you mean by that? When you say it's not the biggest issue, I would agree abortion isn't the biggest issue. I think the gospel's the biggest issue. But um, but you said the reason why abortion is not the biggest issue is because the babies will end up in heaven anyways. So do you think God will still judge people for killing babies? And then let him think it through. Do you think we're supposed to preach against the murder of innocents? And let him answer, you know. Um, what is God's attitude towards the murder of innocence in Scripture? Like, how does he usually view that? Let him think it through. How about you ask this question? Um, when, when a Christian is killed, where do they go? Does that mean it's not really a big deal when Christians are murdered? That really the, the, the bad murders are non-Christians, but the murders of Christians are not a big deal? Because that would seem to follow logically. If they're going to heaven, then, then them dying is not that big of a deal, right? So why then in Revelation is God so furious about the death of his saints, where the blood of the martyrs is crying out for judgment to fall upon the world? But didn't those people go to heaven? What I'm trying to do with all these questions is show that this vicar, maybe show him or show somebody who's thinking this stuff, that you're not thinking rightly. Because your observation leads to a conclusion that con that conflicts with Scripture. But my problem, my concern is that when people say things like this, it's not that abortion not that big of a deal, is they're often just not thinking at all. <laughs> and it's a little difficult to talk to them because when you do challenge them on these issues, I'm just speaking from personal experiences, often people who think along these lines get personally offended. And so you find that the personal offense is what they're responding to and not the logic of your argument. When that happens, sometimes there's a different tactic you can take. Maybe don't go down the road of scripture says this, what about this, what about that? But perhaps you say, well, if someone killed your baby, wouldn't it be a big deal? Because they're thinking with their gut. So maybe they need a gut argument, an apologetic of the gut to help a gut focused person. I'm using the term gut here metaphorically, by the way, um, to, to help them get this. And so, um, for instance, on, on the issue of abortion, I'll give an example of this. I did a whole study one time where I did this this, this teaching, uh, Pro-Life Sunday at my church. Um, and I, I was the guest teacher there for that, for that day, not in the youth group. And I did this Pro-Life Sunday. And um, 
during this, I, I gave all these facts about the, 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 the formation of, of a baby in the womb and uh, all the scripture and all these different things. But there was one thing I threw in there for the gut person. Okay. I said to them, you know, when your friend loses their baby and they have a miscarriage, you never say to them, I'm sorry you lost your clump of cells. I'm sorry you lost your fetus. You know exactly what happened. It's why they're sad. It's why your heart breaks for them. You're sorry they lost their baby. Now, I gave facts and figures and biology and scripture. But that one phrase is what changed the mind of one lady in the congregation. She came up to me afterwards and says, you know, I've always been pro-choice, but when you said that, I know, man, I know when, when they, when, when my friend loses their child, I, I'm so sorry you lost your baby. I know what they lost. That was the thing. So rather than just criticize the gut focused person, maybe we can think of ways of building a bridge to them and thinking, how do I help communicate on the way? Cause their, their way of thinking isn't necessarily just plain wrong. It's just at least not the way I process things. And so maybe reach them there. So yeah, if somebody murdered your baby, would you think it wasn't that big of a deal because your baby goes to heaven? And of course he would not say that. Or you say, as a vicar, if if, if I came to you because someone killed my baby or my baby died, would, would you tell me it wasn't that big of a deal? Because there's something in the gut that will respond to that. Anyway, that that's my thoughts on that. I hope you find them helpful. Um, yeah. When God didn't want to judge Nineveh and he sent Jonah, to preach to them, he gave a couple reasons why. One of them was the children. He did not want to judge the city for the sake of the children. Because he, even though he would usher them into his arms, he didn't want them to die. So it's still a tragedy. All right, number 18, uh, the YouTube name is for Christ. And uh, you say, um, why does Paul say in Ephesians 2.15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, when Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law in Matthew 5, 17. Okay. Um, Ephesians 2, 15. You know what? Let me... Let me give me a moment, y'all. Be patient with me if you would while I look something up real quick. Matthew, what question? 18, 517. Okay, so um, I, I just want to look up the Greek of these to compare them. So what we have in, uh, in, in, the, in these passages is a similar word um, for abolish in Greek. What Paul writes in Ephesians 2.15, I'll put at least the English on your screen. Ephesians 2.15 is um, uh, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And that word abolishing, that word is, um, well, there's different, okay. Katergoe, uh, excuse me, katergeo, I'm getting tired at the end of our thing. Katargeo is the Greek word there. That's the that's like the lexical form of the word. The word Paul's using is, uh, it's more complicated because that's Greek. Jesus, when he talks about abolishing in Matthew 5, 17, I do not come to, a, have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but have come to, um, I've not 
come to abolish them, but have come to fulfill them. That is a similar, but not same word, kataluo. So the first thing that I would want to do is I want to examine the difference between these two words, spend a little time looking at the lexicons, looking at like you know, BDAG or whatever, to consider these different things. Um, but I will also say that here's where we immediately have to slow down for a second and say, these are different statements made in different contexts between Paul and Jesus at different times. And we don't want to hook too much on the term abolish, but on what they meant by the term. So it is a different word in Greek, but it's probably a sister word. Probably a sister word, but no, let me see. Oh man, I wish I had the time to just do a study on, these are different words, okay? But um, they're also in different contexts and the context is something we can focus on. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill. So when Jesus says he's fulfilling them, but not abolishing them, he is talking to a Jewish audience and he's making clear to them that there's a shift changing, a change coming, in, in, in their relationship to the law, it will be fulfilled through Christ. And then us with faith in Jesus, we have fulfilled the law. In Ephesians, however, Paul is talking about something very different. He's talking about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in Christ and how the law served as a separator between Jews and Gentiles. It kept us from being connected, right? A lot of the laws were like cleanliness laws that made it so the Jews had to be separate from Gentiles. And so when he's talking about having abolished the written commandments, he's saying, I've taken them out of the way, not by destroying them, but rather by nailing them to the cross. Paul is speaking of the same thing. Um, let me take us to the passage as Jesus is. He's just using a term that, you know, draws your attention because it has that word abolish. So the, the peace that Jesus has made, we hear this verse all the time, but often out of context. He himself is our peace who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The, the, the both that are becoming one aren't just every believer with every believer, although it applies to all people, specifically though it's Jews and Gentiles, right? The Jews um, and the Gentiles have been brought together in Christ. They've been made one. The wall, he's broken down the wall. Well, there was a wall in the temple that separated Jews and Gentiles. You couldn't go, Gentiles couldn't go past this wall. And there was a sign on the wall, like you walk past this wall, we're going to kill you, right? Your, your death is on your own head. <laughs> that's what the sign said. And um, that's what talks about this dividing wall, right? Now, how did Jesus get rid of the dividing wall? How did he get rid of the separation between Jew and Gentile, right? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in, him, in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So Paul, like Jesus, thinks Jesus is fulfilling all of the law. But he's talking about the results of this fulfillment of the law, and he uses the word abolish, but the abolishment is the tearing down, he's using a strong word here, to tear down the separation that exists between Jews and Gentiles. But he doesn't do this by violating or doing some harm to the law, but by fulfilling the law, so to speak, putting it on the cross, his perfect life and his perfect sacrifice to say that law is satisfied. And if you have faith in Jesus, you are no longer separated by um, the ceremonial or the various requirements that are in the law. I hope that helps. What I'm suggesting here is a biblical principle, right? For us, as we like a hermeneutic, a Bible study principle. That just because two authors use the same word doesn't mean they're using it the same way. So it depends on what you mean by it. And 
we do this in our normal English all the time. People could catch you in contradictions when you're like, yeah, but okay. Yeah. I said, don't X. And later I said, do X, but, but the context and the meaning I had was different. And so there was no contradiction. Uh, number 19, when the teacher in Ecclesiastes says to enjoy life in the context of the book, it, is it being said like, enjoy it because it's a gift from God or enjoy your lot since everything is meaningless. Um, I guess he says it multiple times in Ecclesiastes. So at least commonly in Ecclesiastes, I think when he's like, there's nothing else to do, but just enjoy life. I think this is all a sort of a cynical sarcasm um, that in Ecclesiastes, it uses the term under the sun, kind of like a, kind of like um, if materialism is true kind of thing. It's, I say kind of like that because I wouldn't say actual materialism, but let's say this. If there was no afterlife, and all we have is this life. That's the question Ecclesiastes is answering a lot of the time. And so then he goes like, yeah, well then just enjoy this life because it's all you got. But at the end of the book, he looks back and he affirms, yet there is a judgment and there is a future and God will bring every work into judgment. So don't just enjoy life. Live for God. Live for God now. While you're young, this is the counsel in the book, while you're young, live for God now before those difficult, dark days of old age come. Live for God now. So um, the, the book the book would seem to contradict itself if you don't realize that there's, at least my understanding of Ecclesiastes, kind of a hypothetical of if there's only this life, then I'm just going to chase after it, but it was all just worthless and it all just ends up gone. Um, so yeah, Ecclesiastes is a book for it's written intelligently, it's written thoughtfully, and we must read it that way. We can't just grab a verse and, and use it out of context, especially in a book like that uh, because of it. I hope that helps you out. Those are my thoughts on it. Um, Biblical Watchman has a question. It says, hey, it's Wyatt. What role did the divinity of Christ play? I know a couple different Wyatts, so I'm wondering which one this is. Um, what role did the divinity of Christ play in his ability to atone for the sins of the world? i.e. could Adam before the fall have chosen to die for the sins of all hypothetically? Um, okay, let me, let me answer the second question first. Could Adam before the fall have chosen to die for the sins of all hypothetically? Um, the, I mean, the, the sins of the sins of all would have effectively just been like Eve, I guess, <laughs> but um, Adam would have been uh, in some ways, this, this 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 could be dangerous to do these kind of hypotheticals, but in, let me just talk about it in pieces. In some ways, Adam is a representative of, of all mankind. Unlike any other human after him, he actually does represent us all. Jesus is called the second Adam or the last Adam in different places because he's the representative of us all on the cross. So there's a connection that's there. Um, but Adam and Jesus are very different in that Jesus was tempted and didn't fail and Adam never did that. So to add, to make the hypothetical parallel, we have to kind of give Adam more backstory where he's tempted and he rejects sin and he chooses righteousness. So he has an active righteousness, not just he was innocent, like in the garden. So in a sense, I'm suggesting Adam to Jesus, there's a parallel, but there's also a disconnect. Jesus had the active obedience of resisting sin and doing good, doing godliness and righteous things. Adam had a sustained innocence. Those are not the same thing. And so it's hard for me 
to give you that answer. In addition, Adam's not God in the flesh. And so there's like a, obviously some major differences there. So I'll, I'll just answer it with those observations um, and leave it there. But the other part of your question was, what role did the divinity of Christ play in his ability to atone for the sins of the world? Um, I, I guess I'm totally uh, conjecturing right now because I don't, not immediately do I do I immediately get loaded in my mind specific scriptures that answer this question. What role the divinity of Jesus, as in Jesus wasn't just a perfect man, which even Adam didn't do what Jesus did here because he didn't have that active obedience, but he also had he had the divine nature. He's divine, and what was what was the importance there? Um, um, we could we could guess that part of the importance is that Jesus literally couldn't stay dead. Right, you could kill his body. But there's a sense in which he it, life is in him. He is life, and so he cannot be be destroyed, right? Like he, what happens to all of us can't ultimately happen to him. Um, he must be restored by us by attaching himself to our human nature and dying. He pulls the human nature up out of the grave too, because he is life himself. Do, do you understand that? That seems to be the case to me. So conjecture here. There's an element of his divinity that might have an impact there. Um, Otherwise, it's the character of God. God is holy. God is perfect. God is righteous, which ensures this righteous, perfect life that Jesus lives. He's human, so he can be tempted, but he's divine, and so he lives holy and perfect. Um, so there's an element there that is important. Uh, no one is holy like God. Um, and so those are two things that could be weighing in there. But we should just acknowledge that we're very much in the in the zone of conjecture here. because And it feels a little bit sacrilegious to kind of hypothesize let's try to substitute in our heads Jesus with a, a human version of Jesus that's not divine and maybe is like just Adam. And it, we, we should, I don't know, I, I feel a sense of trepidation. So I prefer to ask the question, not can I substitute Jesus, but rather just um, what are some elements in the atonement that are connected to the divinity of Christ. And, and that's a safer question, I think, theologically. All right, bonus question. And this one comes from Steve Smith. This is a bonus question. I haven't even read it yet. Okay, hold on. I gotta scroll this thing. What pickup do you have on your guitar? Oh gosh, um, I don't remember. This guitar was a gift <laughs> and I did not install the pickup. I used to have um, an, uh, LR bags, I think. Let's see. My my guitar has an LR Bags pickup. Which one is it? I'm not sure, but I could show you the the close up of it right there. There you go. Here you go. Yeah, there it is. I have whatever that is, so I don't know. Well, that's all the time we got for today, folks. <laughs> I feel like I feel like a hillbilly now. All right. Thanks, you guys, for watching. Appreciate you being here. I'll be with you again next week um, for a Q&A. We do every Friday that I can at 1 p.m. Pacific time, and I take your live questions right here from the live chat. We can't always get to all the questions. We never, never can get all, to all of them. We select 20 that seem like they'll be helpful for the listeners as well as the people asking. And if you ask a question that's already been asked, you can actually check my website now. BibleThinker.org has a searchable feature that allows you to search. There's what we call – there's two features – the general video search, but there's the clip search feature. You could type in a term like say atonement and find specific moments in specific videos where I talk about that specific issue. You could type in Nephilim, you could type in depression and you'll find exactly 
the spots that might help you, hopefully, God willing, think biblically about everything. So thank you so much, and uh, God bless you guys. Thank you.